when I'm in a situation and I'm just like, this sheen or whatever it is is not working, more times than not, that's because I've overcomplicated what needs to be done. But oftentimes when I encounter those situations, I think a lot of people's instinct is, oh, just add a new node, add a new node, add a new node. My instinct these days is just to literally hit reset and and start and start over from scratch, right? Because the more complicated I get, uh, I tend to do worse, <laughs> worse things. Hi, and welcome to Color and Coffee, a podcast that focuses on the craft of color grading and the artists behind it. I'm your host, Jason Bodak, and each week we'll sit down with some of the most talented and creative colorists in the industry and have a casual chat from one colorist to another. We'll share their stories, their insights, their grading tips, and of course, their beverage of choice. Whether you're a seasoned colorist or just starting out in the industry, join us for some great color discussion. Strap in, grab your mug, you're listening to Color and Coffee. I am thrilled to have colorist, entrepreneur, trainer, and really one of my mentors, Robbie Carmen. Welcome to the show. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me, man. It's, uh, it's good to catch up. My pleasure. So first off, one of the most important questions I ask every guest of the show, <laughs> what are you drinking today? Uh, well, it is about lunchtime here, but I am still um, consuming a Yeti-sized cup of cold brew uh, iced coffee, um, you know, because you need 64 ounces or whatever of coffee per day. Yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I'm on this morning. I'll have a sip. Absolutely, the the colorist beverage of choice. Now, what? Yeah, the, it's too a little, a little too early for the whiskey, so you know, keep it on the coffee. You know. <laughs> so as a as a cold brew fanatic myself, what do, what do you like for cold brew? Is there a specific brand or anything? No, I'm not a I'm not a snob when it comes to coffee. Like I don't have a coffee press. Like I'm I'm fine just going to like Dunkin' Donuts and getting like a regular like you know drip hot coffee. I don't need like macchiatos and whipped cream and whatever flavored foam. I'm just give me a cup of regular coffee and I'm good. Uh, a natural man, I like it. I'm I'm sipping <laughs> on some uh, some uh, a vanilla. Latte my, my kids, from my my kids on the other hand are snobs. You know. Uh, 10 and 15 years old, they need like triple shots of this with no water and blah, blah. And I don't, I don't even understand the language. I'm just like, give me a regular cup of coffee. I hear you, man. Oh, at least they haven't <laughs> gotten into the, the frappuccinos and the blended drinks with sugar. Oh, no, my, my son, my son has, and it's purely because he's a sugar addict and we have to, uh, we have to, we have to moderate that for sure. Otherwise <laughs> he'd be bouncing off walls, uh, combine the sugar with the caffeine. It's a, uh, it's a recipe for disaster. He'll move to, he'll move to pure caffeine soon. Like a, like a yeah, real right. colorist. I hope, I hope not. Well, now that we've we've gotten the beverages out of the way, I wanted to talk a little bit about you. Do you want to share a little bit about um, your history and your background? Yeah, sure, man. Uh, So, yeah, my name's Robbie. Uh, I'm a professional colorist and educator and all the other various things that you said. I didn't, uh, I kind of arrived on what I do sort of accidentally. Um, When I was younger and a teenager, um, I had aspirations and dreams of um, being a rock star and uh, making it rich that way and uh, had a passion for performing and playing music Um, you know still to this day I have you know a bajillion guitars all over the house and I have a little project studio here at home and I record as much as possible and initially uh, went to school to study music and then realized that like 
probably not going to be a rock star. It was actually um, my first introduction to doing video work. This is at the time in college, uh, mid to late 90s. I had some guys doing some tracking for them in, in the recording studio. And one of the guys walked in and was like, hey, man, do you know anything about video? And held up. It was probably a high eight camera at the time. And said, hey, man, we really want to shoot a music video. Can you help us out? And I was like, ah, well, I guess I'm a little technical. Yeah, sure. And believe it or not, one thing led to another. And I started down that path of discovering video. And like a lot of other people in our industry, of my age group anyway, started out as um, what we refer to as uh, assistant editors or E2s. In those days, it was in linear rooms, uh, running the Chiron, going back into the machine room and swapping out DigiBeta and later on HD cam decks and all that kind of stuff and blacking tapes and setting everything up for the for the editors in the room where the big giant huge consoles and huge switchers could do their thing and right around that time I was introduced um, a little bit to color work and at the time the controls were in the linear rooms was very rudimentary it was just a tbc kind of a little pedestal a little setup and that kind of stuff but the place that I was working had um, had some DaVinci systems. And that's what kind of I initially learned and kind of was trained on and that kind of stuff. And was then, it even a 2K um, at that point or was it pre-2K? Yeah, it would have been an, it would have been an 888 and then a 2K and then a 2K plus. Um, you know, these are, this is at the time when we're talking about literally heavy iron kind of machines. A company would come in with a rack of gear and go, hey, here's your machine. You know, this was uh, heyday of Quantel and Discrete Logic, DaVinci Systems, Quantel with the, like the Paintbox and the Henry and, and all those, you know, those, those various machines. This is when people joke now, but this is when, you know, DaVinci's setup was, was a half a million to a million plus dollars. Thinking about it now, it's just like, it's amazing the tools that we have compared to back then. But, uh, in the early 2000s, uh, I decided to jump out on my own, do my own thing and quickly realize that, oh man, I can't probably ever afford a million dollar, you know, Da Vinci box. And so, you know, like a lot of people kind of floundered with various desktop color corrections. I actually have a funny story. Later in the mid 2000s, um, I actually purchased uh, Silicon Colors Final Touch uh, 2K. Um, I think it was about 25 grand, something like that, 30 grand. I actually got a loan from my folks <laughs> uh, to, to go after the software. And this was like, Probably around this time of year, like February, March, I'm like, oh, I'm all stoked about this. Go out to NAB that year. And I remember like it was yesterday, an Australian colorist, David Gross, got up on stage for Apple and was like, hey, I'd like to introduce Apple Color. And I knew oh. that Silicon Color, Silicon Graphics had gotten, not graphics, Silicon Color had gotten purchased by Apple, but I had no idea what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And literally like a month earlier, I had spent buckets and buckets of cash on the software to only now have it be included as part of uh, Final Cut Studio, <laughs> so that was a little that was a little gut check. But yeah, I've been running my own uh, running my own company, for, uh, you know, gosh, now twenty years or so um, in various shapes and fashions. These days, it's myself, my partner Joey Deanna. Joey is another well known educator and colorist, uh, and we've been partnered for five, six, seven years, something like that. And you know, we complement each other and do that work the work that we do so that's great uh and then as you also know uh, education has been a constant theme in my life in those early 2000 days i was part of the the first generation ish of uh, final cut pro instructors i think that was probably final cut two or three somewhere in that range and did a lot of work within the that ecosystem contributing to a lot of the apple pro training series books i was also a early lynda.com author doing stuff on apple color funny enough 
uh, and various color-related things. And then I spun that into around 2011-2012, along with uh, Dan Moran and Patrick Inhofer, we started uh, MixingLike.com, which is obviously a well-known, decade later, a well-known and respected uh, color training website for everything Resolve, Premiere, whatever it is, anything color-related. So I was an owner and manager of that business for about a decade. In December of 2021, uh, Dan and I left uh, left Mixing Light, but it's still obviously still going strong with uh, with Patrick at the helm. And these days, I'm just trying to um, you know keep my head above water and grading all the time, and you know all that kind of fun stuff. So that's the protracted version of uh, about me. Well, you are doing quite a bit, man. Um, I think one of the funniest things in the story that I hadn't heard about is how you got washed over by what was going to be Apple Color. I don't, I don't have any PTSD about it, Jason. It's cool. I mean, I'm not, I'm still not like, you know, my parents are, I think, still trying to collect that, you know, here I am in my, my mid, mid forties. And I think my folks are still trying to collect on that loan. Well, they, they probably have quite the interest on that. So yeah, right. It's probably, it's probably up to about 150 grand now, to be honest with you. (laughs) Well, I mean, we've, we've all, uh, in, in some way, maybe not the 25 grand, but we've all experienced that resolve started off, uh, like you said, at half a million and then it went down to, I believe, um, a thousand um, and then it went yeah. down to two ninety nine, I believe, is that now. And everybody that has had a license for it um, has experienced that. I don't want to call it a collapse, but that readjustment of of our oh, industry yeah. for software. And I think yeah. you have a tremendous attitude toward it, as opposed to feeling ripped off. You're you feel. Uh, the evolution of our industry. Yeah, I mean that's that's the thing about it, right? Is that everything goes that way eventually, and the democratization of the tools and the cost of the technology, and I mean everything shrinks down, gets smaller, faster, better. I'm, I'm just sitting here. The machine I'm on talking to you on is one of those M1 Ultra Mac Studios, and it just boggles my mind that this little square box can do stuff, run circles around gear that I had even five or six years ago. It's just that's just the way of the industry, and I think if you get mad about it, you're going to be in for a world of hurt. It's just better to uh, be strategic about it, pick your battles when you can, and when you decide to go a certain direction, go that direction and be happy about it uh, while it's serving you. And when it's not serving you anymore, think about upgrading and moving on. That's probably a really that might be one of the best tips that you gave throughout this entire <laughs> podcast. Uh, as a as a fellow hardware nerd, I get uh, and I can get attached to to my gear, especially when you're spending so much money on it. Um, I too have made quite a, a big investment into the the Apple silicone range. Um, I'm currently rebuilding my office right now, uh, nice. basically to be completely around it. And it's amazing how far technology has come. But three years ago, if I would have put my foot in the, in the sand and said, this is everything that I'm going to do, um, and this is where I'm going to be with technology, then I probably wouldn't be where I am today. Uh, being yeah, flexible. I mean, I've always taken I've always taken approach with gear, especially is that I mean, those those folks who know me well know that I'm kind of a gearhead, and they're just like, oh man, you're always chasing the next big thing. I've always taken the approach as a small boutique company, as a, as you know, not having uh, you know huge engineering staff, etc. One of the fights that I have all the time is just trying to stay on or slightly in front of that technological curve because i do believe that uh as you know independent operators as small shops etc like that's how you know early especially early on in my career when things did did actually cost a million dollars for this or that or whatever it was a battle it was a fight to stay on capabilities with people right like you know at that time you had to be able to say to clients like no 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 we got the whatever you know insert whatever piece of gear here um, and we can do that same service that the big shop can do. 
of course, these days, that's a little bit less of a concern with, you know, the democratization of the tools and all that kind of stuff that you said and things being file based and all that kind of stuff. But still, to the certain to a certain degree, my approach is always be a little speculative on things to try to stay out in front of that curve as little as as, as much as possible without sinking the ship. For, uh, for example, when it comes to big, you know, whatever, monitor purchases, computer purchases, that kind of stuff, I generally take the approach of like leasing or financing, that kind of stuff, so it's not a huge hit to my cash flow. And it just allows me to keep that kind of like that turnover, right? You know, every two, three, four years, um, you know, I'm swapping out for the latest and greatest kind of thing. And that, that's so far in 20-something years of doing this, that's that's proved to be pretty successful. That's, that's some great tips. I know, I don't know a lot of people that look at leasing large pieces of hardware to like at that my myself included so i'm gonna have to start yeah. looking into that as well yeah it's just it's just much easier than coming up with whatever 10 15 grand or 20 grand or whatever it is out of your pocket uh to make that happen and from a cash flow i mean listen i'm not an accountant so i'm not giving accounting advice to anybody uh but you know i i have found that that to be a good cash flow thing a good way to stay up on technological curve i mean it kind of drives me crazy kind of gives me a little bit of um ocd panic attacks when every couple of years i'm ripping down the machine room or ripping apart the desk <laughs> or whatever whatever it is but uh, that's the life that I, I've chosen to lead, you know, as somebody who had to make a, a multi-thousand dollar purchase uh, about two weeks ago. And even though all the metrics say it's good and everything, all the business prospects say it's good, still makes me so nervous pressing that purchase yeah, button. Of course, man. Of course. Of course. If anybody who not needs some servers, just let me know. I got a stack <laughs> here in the corner. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to take that and I'm going to venture into, so you as a, as a small business owner, you happen to run DC color. Mm -hmm. and um, you're a Dolby Vision provider in the D.C. area. Yep. And that's something that, that I and a lot of colorists look up to. Um, you're running a, a really basically high-end facility in an area, and you're providing Dolby Vision services to Disney and Netflix and, I mean, any, sure. any variety of clients, uh, especially we were talking about National Geographic. So in this area, clients that are not necessarily familiar with Dolby Vision. And so you're bringing technologies like Dolby Vision and HDR to the, the prime time. Yeah. And like you were talking, that technology is, is pretty expensive. I mean, we just saw Sony sure. just announced a brand new monitor for, uh, they haven't announced the price yet, which always makes me nervous. But when somebody on this podcast is looking at you and go, wow, I want to, I want to be somebody like Robbie. I want to have a facility like this. I want to be in a, in a small business. I don't want to be in a, a large color facility. Where do you suggest somebody start like this? Obviously, they can run a small facility in their house, but how does somebody start to prep and path out their way? Yeah, it's a it's a nuanced, slightly complicated question, so I'll try to answer it from a couple different different points of view. So first, I think to me, it's running a small business is not for everybody, right? I mean, I'm not trying to say this to gloat or blow, you know, to to boast or anything, but like it's not for everybody. The the pressures of having to make payroll and pay rent and, you know, manage clients and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I spend, Jason, it's funny. I spend so much of my day, you know, on Zoom phone calls with, you know, doing sales stuff on, on QuickBooks, running invoices and, you know, what all these kind of things. And of course that can scale, you know, depending on how big you want to get and that kind of stuff. When I started out, I think the overwhelming thing for me as a young guy out of college who, like most young guys out of college, thinks they know a lot more than they really do. Um, you know, 20 something years ago, I made the decision that like, I really don't want to be the low man on the total pool. Right? I really don't want to be that guy working in the machine room at 3 a.m., swapping out tapes, whatever. And there was, I mean, I'll be, you know, looking back on it now, 
the amount of hubris that I had about my technical capabilities, my creative capabilities. Like I just, it's, it's comical now looking back, doing that introspection and looking at myself back then. Um, what a little proverbial S I was, you know, that thinking makes I two knew. of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Thinking, you know, thinking I knew everything about everything. Um, but I think at that time that sort of seeded the idea that I really wanted to kind of do my own thing. I, I personally, um, find satisfaction and pleasure of the weight being on me, right? Like if something's going to fail, I want it to be my fault. Not like that situation where whatever, a manager, a middle, you know, middle tier guy screwed up. And now the company's going under, right? Like I'd rather have that pressure on me. So I knew right away that like, yeah, I wanted to start my own thing, do my own thing and fight those battles myself. And again, that's not for everybody, uh, but that's what kind of what I decided to do. And then the second part about that we already spoke about is kind of just, I had this desire right as these tools started to be democratized from the million dollar systems and, you know, all the hardware and stuff, I really did see, no, this is a pathway. Like I can do this in a cost effective, uh, relatively cash affordable model without having to be tied up in million dollar boxes and, you know, all the financing and the support contract. And I, that's just a factor of timing. Like I was lucky to be alive doing the things I was doing at the time and make it work. If I had 10 years either way, it probably would have been a different story. And I think the thing for me was that I always knew, and this is a big important factor for me, I always knew that I didn't want to be a 50 person company or a hundred person company. I wanted to sort of design the lifestyle that worked for me, have two, three, four people, have some partners that did other things. I mean, and to this day, that's true. I mean, like, you know, it's basically Joey and I occasionally will bring another colorist or occasionally assistant or whatever. Uh, but we we share space and partner with an audio company for over 15 years. They're called Oddhouse Audio. They're great. And so I just kind of knew that that was for me. I think these days, dude, it's, you know, the the biggest determining factor, I think that's hard for a lot of people because the tools are there, the skill level's there. I mean, more people know about this stuff than ever before. I mean, when I started teaching color stuff, it literally was a dark art. And now... I mean, you can pretty much go anywhere, you know, whether it's mixing light or Ripple or YouTube or whatever, people are, are teaching this stuff. And so I think it's easier in that regard more than ever to do it. I think still what separates what I refer to as kind of the bedroom colorist versus like the, the boutique owner is that ability to have client supervised space, place where a client can come in do work, feel comfortable. That's not your house, right? And I think that's a big distinction for a lot of people, whether they say it or not, mm -hmm. between kind of what they want. Like I'm never, I don't think a lot of bedroom colorists, as, and I'm not trying to say that as a derogatory term. It's just, it is what it is. They're working out of their house. They're doing whatever. They're probably not going to get a B-level or A-level Netflix project because they don't have the facility. They don't have the physical space. They don't have you know, the certifications like TPN and all that kind of stuff. The infrastructure so I think that is a, that's required. Yeah, the, the infrastructure, basically. Yeah, exactly. And I'll also, it's, I think part of that too is kind of the, the physical infrastructure, the hardware infrastructure, the client infrastructure, right? Like when somebody comes in the space and I'm working, I need somebody to greet them. I need somebody to show them, you know, the Wi-Fi password, where the bathrooms are, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think that's part of it as well. I mean, I hate to say it, but it does, it brings the bill up. And if they can pay that bill, then that's fantastic. And if they're not looking for that, then there's the, the middle range, which I think has expanded drastically. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the market that I play in is the great middle. I'm under no illusions that I'm going to be doing, you know, Game of Thrones, or I'm going to be doing like a Rihanna video or whatever it may be, right? Like, I think that um, 
especially in my market, and people always are, you know, by the way, are like, DC, what's that? I mean, DC dollar for dollar is, is a very big post-production production market with all a lot of various networks here. And all. anyway, I, I digress. My point is that that middle and especially the higher end of middle is where I kind of operate and want to be, right? And that's a, that's a huge middle. And and to be clear, I think that some colorists and some people, some entrepreneurs and facility owners go in with this mindset of like, it is A-level Netflix or bust, right? I think they, you know, then they acquiesce to doing lower, like I've never had the mindset that doing a corporate video for somebody is any less important than doing the Dolby Vision premiere show, right? Because as far as I'm concerned, money their money is still green you know what i'm saying if they're willing to pay the rates i you know it doesn't really bother me if it's uh, a corporate training video versus you know a narrative feature uh, as long as they're paying the bills and they're paying the rates that we want it's it's good for me oh my god there's so much to unpack in there um we we had a similar conversation i want to say about a year ago and it i want to say had a dramatic change in the way that i look at different clients now and you said that same thing you you called it the great middle it really changed the way that I look at the different projects now. Because to me, that great middle has expanded so much. And instead of fighting over uh, the what is shrinking the AAA titles, this middle, uh, especially with things like uh, Max and everything else, our middle is expanding. And especially now that they're uh, being mastered in Dolby Vision, there is so much content that needs to be colored and finished that in, in a professional manner. And like you said, if they pay well and they pay consistently, their projects are just as good as everything else. And in fact, if they are less drama, then they're better. (laughs) To be honest with you, I find that that middle, the higher end middle client is actually in many ways from just a creative point of view, from a business point of view, is a lot less stressful and demanding than you find on the lower end of things. And the thing that you find on the really high end of things, right? Like, I mean, I've sat in rooms doing agency work with seven people who all have different opinions. They're yelling at each other. They're yelling at you. And I'm just like, yeah, I can, I can deal without that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'd rather, like, right. Like, I, like, cool, it's cool. And like, great. I can put that on my portfolio. It's for a big brand, whatever. But like the stress involved in that. I'd way rather do the, whatever, I keep, you know, saying this, but like the corporate training video with, you know, someone who's like, oh, it looks great, whatever, for the same amount of money without the stress and be totally cool with it. And um, I think that that's one thing that I think a lot of people in our industry overlook. Because look, I'm like everybody else. If I could work on insert a, a list feature here, of course, like that would be creatively rewarding. It would be big feather in my cap. But I realize that I'm not, as a small business owner doing what I do and whatever, I'm not going to compete with company three to get James Cameron's or whatever, whoever, insert big, you know, A-list director, DP. I'm not going to be doing that work. So it's not, it sounds like a defeatist attitude. It's kind of like, I'm just settling, but I don't look at it that way. I look at that, again, that great middle and being a much bigger pool of projects that are much more realistic for me to work on that maybe I don't have the same notoriety. Maybe it's not the same level of profile, but whatever, if it's paying the bills, my family's happy, you know, all that kind of stuff, it's good by me. I also think you touched on something that's pretty important there. Uh, you touched on family and you're running a business. You're focusing on stability, which I think is incredibly important. And you have other things to do than just focusing on this one project. I do think that it's um, well, it's hard when people are working on very high budget AAA movies. That's the focus. That is the goal. And it's hard to 
uh, I mean, it can, you can forget about your life and family and stuff, and that can be pushed to the side. And that's incredibly damaging when you're doing that consistently. Dude, I can't tell. I mean, we, without, you know, I think that you know some people like this. I definitely know some people like this who have had it in their mind. And I, I can't fault them for this, right? They've had it in their mind that in whatever niche or genre that they're really excelling at, whether it be music videos or features or whatever, that they have the singular focus to be the guy or the gal in in that niche. And they do everything possible to make that happen long hours, never saying no in the suite for 20 hours a day for, you know, seven days a week kind of thing. And I have to respect that drive and that passion. I know a lot of people like that, but I would also say that every single one of those people that I know that are like that at some point has crashed and burned, had this existential life crisis, whether it's worth it, whether they should still be doing it. And then they, they, you know, they, they seem to have these patterns of like, well, no, I'm going to scale back a lot. No, I'm going to scale up. I'm going to scale back. And, and like, you're, you're right. My approach has always been design the lifestyle that you want, right? And then, you know, I think we we tend to in this industry think that that pain factor of working like that is somehow like making you better. Like it's building up your character or whatever. It's getting and, a thicker skin. We're going to be better in the next yeah. one. Yeah, and I mean, we've all we've all been there, right? We've all done the projects where we probably pushed a little too hard, but the people who are doing it consistently, like I said, I respect them because they're they're that's an amazing amount of effort and work. But I also worry about the folks that I know that are like that, right? Who sometimes I feel like are at the mental breaking point. Sometimes their life has just flashed them by. Look, I got two kids. They're now uh, basically ten and fifteen. And when, when they were really little, I kind of had a little bit more of that in my life, like a little bit more of like constantly pushing, constantly being in the sweep. And a decade on, I'm kind of like, ah, well, I don't remember that. Oh, I, was I there? And like, there's a lot of situations in my life when my kids especially were really little that like, it's fine. Like they're not like damaged goods or anything, but I'm like... Oh yeah, I wasn't. I was working that Saturday for that birthday party, or I, you know, wherever, you know, those those kind of things. And it got to a point in my in my career in my life where I just said, "Look, I'm never going to be the guy at insert huge company here working on huge project there, right?" And it's again sounds defeatist, but I've never been happier after I realized that decision and made that decision because I wasn't chasing something. That um, for me, at least, I think was probably unattainable. Again, no problem with people who are working like that. I just sometimes I think it's good to just take a pause, breathe, kind of reevaluate what you're doing, because eventually people people do burn out. I don't think that's defeatist at all, because you're actually allowing yourself to come to work fully charged for your clients, too. I mean, I've I've certainly burned out and it's a lot of people in our industry have burned out. And we've seen we know that divorce rates are really high particularly in our industry. I know quite a few people yeah. that are on, uh, unfortunately, their, their second or third marriage. And we know, yep. I know a couple of top A colors that are in their ridiculous number of marriage. And that to me, when I found that out was something that I personally said, this is not worth it for me as much as I'd love to have a really long credit list. I'd really like to be happy and uh, enjoy what I do. When I decided to be a colorist, I wanted to do it because I loved what I do, not because I wanted to have a long credit list on IMTB. <laughs> I had a, he was a professor of mine who has become a good 
client of mine over the <laughs> over the years. I don't know his exact words, but the gist of this was something like, it's TV. Nobody's going to die. And I think that as an industry and as operators, sometimes we don't actually listen to that kind of advice or thing, you know, things that are said like that. And we do kind of like, I mean, listen, I'm not doing open heart surgery on anybody where that there's a chance that like the person I'm working on is going to die, right? I'm yeah. moving pixels around on a screen. I'm sorry it's a little too blue or a little too red or a little too whatever. I think we're all at some level pleasers. Like, right, we're, we're fixers, right? Mm -hmm. And it's especially in the color world. Like, mm -hmm. we're, we're there. It's the dog and pony show. People getting out of their, you know, out of their companies, out of their workplaces, coming to our spaces, working in these nice suites and paying good dollars, you know, per hour. And so there's this dog and pony show where you're always trying to please people, say yes, do all those kind of things. But, you know, the reality of it is if something is not 100% perfect, it's fine. Again, you, I always, the work ethic, and I don't want people to confuse me because I, I have a very strong work ethic and I always want to do my absolute best on something. But I also live by this adage of not everything's art. You know what I'm saying? And at some point in time, I think the one thing that everybody has to learn is get the project to the point where people are pretty happy with it. Because if you obsess about that particular thing and ad nauseum, you're going to drive yourself crazy. You're probably going to do actually a worse job than you would if yeah. you just treated it a little lighter. And at the end of the day, I'm sure you've been in this position where you've gone, oh, well, this client has a budget of, I'm just going to insert a number here. They have a budget yeah. of $1,000 and you've done $7,000 worth of work on the project. Like that's not like, no, like you can't <laughs> like at a certain point. And, and we all have been there. We all, tr we all do that every once in a while. Yeah. But I have, you know, in the past decade or so, I've taken the attitude of going to do my absolute best within the parameters of the project. And I don't, I'm trying to not live with things as much as I used to. And I, I honestly, I've been way happier about that. Yeah, it's, it's not personal. I, I chase my tail. I used to chase my tail. It's still something that I'm, I'm working on. Um, and just letting it go out the door as, as best as it can be, especially for, for content that's not uh, live or die. So I was in an interview with a, a pretty well-known color house in LA and yep. they mentioned something to me that really completely envelopes that entire attitude. This was a little bit a couple of years ago, back when I was a little bit, um, more aggressive. But when I heard this comment, it was, uh, I will almost say career changing for me because immediately I had to evaluate what I was doing there. And his comment to me, and this was a producer, this wasn't a colorist, but this was a producer. And his comment was, we're not saving lives here, but it's pretty damn close. And immediately, as badly as I wanted this job, immediately, I just foresaw my life at this place. And imagine if they see themselves saving lives, what are they going to be asking of their staff? That is so rampant in our industry. And I think it really causes people to one, burn out and two, leave post-production, which is terrible. Yeah. And I, th I think that if you look at the people that thrive and succeed well in that kind of environment, they are, they're a different breed. I mean, like the, the top, the top people, um, you know, at these major facilities, they have a way of, at least is my observation of this, I know this from far, not, you know, in, in brief talks with some of these people, but yeah. it seems to me they have a way of really kind of compartmentalizing a lot of that stress, right? And it seems to me a lot of those people are also very private people and they've learned the value of family and when to turn it off and that kind of stuff. I think the problem with the great majority of us 
is that we actually have a problem compartmentalizing, right? We can't be like, this is a work problem and now I'm home. The great majority of us, we're at the office or whatever doing this work and then you come home and then it's bugging you when you're sitting on the couch and all you're thinking about is, oh, did I screw that project up? And next thing you know, at 11 o'clock, you know, at night, you're driving back to the office or you're going downstairs in your house and remoting into office on and <laughs> trying to mess with it. And, and it's, it's hard. And I mean, again, I have I have nothing but respect for that type of person at those types of facilities doing that work. I mean, like, listen. Do I like watching all the shows they make? Absolutely. They're beautiful and they're great. And they're, I'm just saying for me, I made the choice that like, nope, I'm happy right here in my lane and that's where it is. And I'm not going to drive myself crazy trying to achieve these things that are going to give me burnout, less time with my family, you know, all those. Kinds. They're incredible artists, but it's a very difficult lifestyle to have. I think it's the the general yeah. thing that I've learned. So, and I think, and I think, I think, I think if you asked any of those types of folks, I, I think they would acknowledge on some level that yes, very rewarding creatively, uh, technically, you know, working with the biggest producers, actors, whatever in the world. Um, but there's moments that it's just like it's tough. Yeah, I'm sure. And if I'm sure if they were being honest, that they would they would they would cop to that for sure. But you mentioned it earlier. Our industry shows that as being the only way, and there's not. There's yeah. a bunch of other ways that we can go. Moving on to another subject, I wanted to ask if I were to take you onto a desert island and you are only allowed to take a very small suitcase, and in that suitcase you can take <laughs> one grading tool. What grading tool would that be? Yeah, I mean, I think I just have to say, even though I'm, I don't utilize these tools 100% of the time, I, I'd say it's just have to be lift, gamma, gain. I mean, like, okay. yeah, I think, the, I think the cool answer is, you know, offset and printer points and, you know, those kind of things. But, like, in reality, it's like if I was, if I had to bang through a thousand shots in a show, black, white, saturation, next shot, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm -hmm. if I had to do it with just a single tool set, um, that's probably what it would be. I mean, it would be great if they were color space aware lift gamma gain. Um, One but day. I mean, I would say, and I would say if I had a, if I had a, um, you know, a choice, if I could bring, you know, one other tool set, um, I rely a lot on the secondary curves, uh, you know, hue versus hue, hue mm -hmm. versus sat, uh, that kind of stuff. That would be another one. If I could, if I could sneak something in my luggage, um, that would Throw probably, it in the front probably compartment. be the other one. <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm really, I'm really kind of conflicted on this because like in reality, I'm much more of an offset printer point, uh, kind of person, um, in contrast, pivot kind of thing, those tools. But if I had, if I had to sum it all into one bag, it would probably mm -hmm. be lift gamma gain. Awesome. And you know what? A lot of people go with the offset. And I love that you yeah. went with the more generalized control because well, I think that's a cool one. answer. I think everybody's like, oh, yeah, I'm doing like film style grading. It's offset. It's printer point. Like in reality, it's sort of like, no, nah, you're just going to game that up and drop blacks and like move on, you know? And well, you you mentioned it right there. What are you going to do if you need to expand the contrast or this one's really milky and this one's really and you're stuck there. So I love that answer. And the whole reason I asked that question is to to remind people to start thinking as simple as possible and that we make grading so complicated with all these different tools and that really is just as about as simple as we can make it to get the shot out 100 percent, man there is no uh you know when i when i talk to young colorists or have had assistants in the past like i'm i play a lot of golf and so the golf's a passion of mine and i always say to them my, my dad said to me when i was a kid like there's no pictures on the scorecard right i kind of <laughs> think the same way about grading like sure you could have 14,000 nodes and use every tools available and resolve. 
all that really matters is what ends up on screen and if people are happy with it, right? Like nobody's going back and being like, huh, did you use this tool? You know, like, no, it just, you know, whatever, whatever works the project and gets things on screen, that's, that's it. That's definitely a recent colorist thing on Instagram where people are like, you use the FPE letter, you use this tool, but no one really, no one ever knows what they're using. And that's when I think it's great when I'm like, I have no idea what they use, but that looks great. <laughs> I mean, I'm a victim to that. And we all are right. Of trying the latest and greatest tool or whatever, but like, at, I'm with you. I don't think complexity necessarily breeds great results. I think that a lot of times when I look at, especially from the education point of view, when I'm you know, doing a lot of that kind of work, people have students who are like, look, I've used 600 nodes and I have 14,000 corrections. And I'm like, yeah, but that image looks horrible. And here's where it's broken. And here's where it's broken. Like, how about one node and just some contrast and some color balance? You know, and it's like, um, I'm a firm believer that less is often more in, uh, in, in color work. And I, years ago, um, and I mean, you've had the pleasure of working with him directly. I have not. But years ago, I heard uh, everybody's favorite uh, company, Three Colors, Walter Vapato, say, you know, something to the effect of, like, respect the photography. Walter gets to work with uh, some of the best DPs and directors in the world. So his photography that he's getting to look at is probably a lot better than a lot of the photography that I get to look at. But at the same time, my point, what I've taken that to mean in my life and the work that I do is that sometimes it's not your role to invent the shot with 14,000 corrections, right? Sometimes your role is just to support what's there, right? And, you know, improve what you can improve and, and move on. And I see a lot of, I see a lot of young colorists essentially overcoloring and overgrading things because they're trying to invent a shot that's not actually there in the principal photography, right? Um, and I think that's dangerous because then you're kind of inserting your own look and feel you're inserting you're making up stuff that didn't really happen on set and there's a place for that kind of stuff we've you know of course but i i try to take the approach of generally speaking less less is more you know kind of respecting that photography i'll add in a quote that that walter told me i don't actually remember what movie it was on he was working with the dp and uh, he took it a little too far the dp reached out to him and said thank you for reshooting my movie <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, exactly. I mean, and, and, and in that in that great middle that we've spoken about, I mean, a lot of those clients have no idea what they're doing in the first place. So they actually are relying on you to do a little bit of that work compared to, you know, compared to the very well thought out, very well opinionated. I mean, like, you know, the, the DPs that he probably works with have spent years of their life choosing lenses yes. camera systems lights you know all kinds of stuff so I, I i get that but i, I just think that when i'm in you know i'll put it into practical terms when i'm in a yeah. situation and i'm just like this shot this shot is or this scene or whatever it is is not working more times than not that's because i've overcomplicated what needs to be done right and i i, I it took me a while you know years of you know having those situations counter but oftentimes when I encounter those situations, I think a lot of people's instinct is, oh, just add a new node, add a new node, add a new node. My instinct these days is just to literally hit reset. Reset. And and start <laughs> and start over from scratch, right? Because the more complicated I get, uh, I tend to do worse <laughs> worse things, if that makes sense. It was it was like spices. How it's so easy to overspice something, and it's usually better with less spices. That's how color grading is. I think that I, that that wasn't me, but I'm going to steal that. That's a that's it. a really great that's a really that's a really great analogy, right? Um, it's like once it's there in the pot, it's really hard to take it back. But like if 
if somebody wants a little more salt, sure, we can pour pepper that on a little bit more or whatever. But um, yeah. yeah, no, I, that's a good analogy for sure. I think to avoid that harsh um, situation of of accidentally overcorrecting a movie. I tend to consider myself as like the DP's assistant. It's really easy for us to sort of step in, especially now that the colorists are finally, we're starting to see the light of day a little bit and people are starting to recognize color a little bit more than five five or 10 years ago. But I think it's really important to remember what we are. And we are the DP's assistant and we're not this this hotshot Photoshop look creator, which is what a lot of people think colorists are. And remembering that we are there to assist the DP in post. And that's what our job is. It's funny because that's like, to me, that's it's like an inverse funnel of how that works. Because you would think you talk to a lot of very successful colorists and they're, they have that attitude that you're just espousing. Then you look at the kind of entry level uh, side of things. And it's like, you know, that, that tends to be the kind of project, the kind of colorist or whatever that's overdoing it right and you know i think that that is you know it's needed sometimes but it's it's really interesting to me how that works like as you progress in your career and get to work on bigger and better projects you're actually required to do less and less and less you know i often daydream you know when i get when i get a project in that's whatever you know there's iPhone shots or GoPro and they're 11 stops overexposed (laughs) and you know everything is grainy i often think to myself but what would an insert A-list colorist here? How would they do? You know, like they'd have a heart attack, right? Like it's like, like what would I mean? And granted, all of those people have done their battles with that and, and paid their dues and worked their way up. But it's just really funny to me that you know I'm sure that if the average person looked at the original uncolored photography of a lot of high end projects, their first instinct would be like, well. That looks great. Like, what, what do I need? What do I need? What do I need to do? To it? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> the show let's done. Next shot, yeah. please. Uh, okay, cool. It's colored. Like, move on. <laughs> and, and um, you know, that's, again, I think that's something earned. I think that's, that's something that, not saying at all that those people have it easy because they have a lot of no. other pressures and a lot of other, other things that they have to deal with. But um, that is a nice little spoil of, have, of having worked your way up the food chain is that you do get better and better, better photography that, requires actually a little less to do sometimes. And on the flip side of that, you are then, you have that much more stress because there's that much more money and time put behind that. And so it's not, you might have great photography, but then there is a lot more pressure for you to deliver specifically because we had that vision and we were looking and there's all these producers on set. I mean, listen, I can't, I can't (laughs) tell you that I've ever had a DP sitting in my room going, oh, it's a quarter of a point off in exposure or um, that color temperature is 6,211 Kelvin, not 6,205, you know, like that's not, that, that doesn't happen to me, right? Um, but I can imagine that you have professional, creative professionals at the top of their game in those rooms on those type of projects. That can be a really hard balance to manage for sure. If Viewers or listeners wanted to learn more about you or find you. Where could we find you and DC Color? Yeah, for sure, man. Uh, so just dccolor.com is website. You can find me, Robbie.carman, C-A-R-M-A-N. It's one car, one man on Instagram. Uh, you can also find DC Color on Instagram, which is just dc.color. And yeah, I'm bouncing around. Um, I'm you know answering questions on Facebook and various groups. And um, yeah, that's probably the best way to find me. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure having you on your show. Yeah, man, thank you. Thank you so much, man. It's always it's always a good catch up and uh, best of luck with the podcast series for sure. Thank you so much. Until next time, I'm Jason Bodek for Color and Coffee. I'll see you guys on the next episode. And this has been Robbie Carmen on this episode of Color and Coffee. Thank you guys so much and see you in the next episode. And that's our show. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, YouTube, or your podcast app of choice. If you're using Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please leave us a review. It helps us quite a bit. If you are looking for DaVinci Resolve tools, please be sure to visit our sponsor, Pixel Tools. We'll see you guys in two weeks with another great interview. Be safe and happy grading.